It's January 6th, 2024, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. The year might be new, Michael, but you and I will never change. Well, I hope our relationship only deepens, but yes, you and I are constant. Things you couldn't trust and rely on, right? (laughs) Exactly. Our love of airmail, our obsession with the new issue, our fixation on film and television. These are the things that you can rely on in life. Absolutely. And we've got a great show to kick off 2024. We've got our co-editor. Alexander Stanley, who has a look at how Vladimir Putin punishes women in Russia in order to crush dissent. And then, speaking of bad behavior by prominent men, Alexander Marshall is going to join us from France to tell us why the Me Too allegations have finally caught up with the country's most decorated miscreant, Gerard de Perdue. And continuing on the subject of miscreants, Patrick Kidd will join us from London with the crazy story of a woman known as Baroness Bra. She made millions when she created a padded bra and even became a member of the House of Lords. But now the government is suing her for hundreds of millions of dollars. And finally, Corby Kummer has the bittersweet story of the decline and possible fall of New York's last great temple to classic French dining, La Grenouille. Ashley, you were like Santa Claus over the holiday break. You were circling the globe here and yonder. Where would you like to begin now that you're back in London? Well, Michael, should we talk about La Grenouille? I mean, this is, by the way, this is the scene of a wedding after all, Michael. You got married here back in the day. Those are pictures that I'm sure our listeners would love to see. Any stories for us? Well, I guess I got married there in Brook. We thought, let's get married at La Grenouille. It was once this sort of perfect jewel box. We thought, this is a place it is a New York institution. It's going to be here forever. And yet, we have Corby Kummer tell us it might not be, right? It's both a tragic and exciting moment for food lovers as La Grenouille, the storied building that contained it for so many years, is now for sale in the middle of New York City. Someone who has $15 million should buy it. And we've got Corby Kummer here to explain the situation. He is the executive director of Food and Society at the Aspen Institute, a senior editor of The Atlantic, a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science, and the author of two great books, The Joy of Coffee and The Pleasures of Slow Food. Needless to say, he loves to eat and he's our kind of guy. Welcome, Corby. I'm so glad to be here. All right. So much to talk about in this piece about La Grenouille. It used to be in New York City. You had Le Cote Basque, Glutes. For those of our listeners who might not know where La Grenouille fits in the firmament, in the landscape of New York dining, can you tell us what La Grenouille is and why it matters so much? Let's go back to the New York World's Fair of 1939, which old as we may be, none of us actually go back. Henri Soulet opened a restaurant there called Le Pavillon. Then in 1941, he opened a version in New York. This was the beginning of grand French cuisine in New York. I would say it sort of reaches its apotheosis when Jackie Kennedy gets to the White House, hires Mr. Verdun, a French chef. But the Kennedys loved Henri Soulet. They loved Le Pavillon. Le Pavillon trains a number of restaurateurs, the grandfather of a lot of French restaurants. One of them goes on to open La Grenouille in a beautiful Neo-Georgian Beaux-Arts townhouse on 52nd Street across from Cartier. And he is named Charles Masson. Like a lot of restaurateurs in New York, including Sirio Maccioni of Le Cirque, he works on the Italian-America line on cruise ships. They get their training in hospitality on fancy cruise lines and even in the waning age of cruise lines because it was the rise of airlines and air travel, they were the standard setters in hospitality. 
And so Henri Soule at Le Pavillon trains Charles Masson, who with his wife opens La Grenouille in New York. So La Grenouille is not only one of New York City's great restaurants and great French restaurants, it's one of the sort of temples of hospitality. There's temples of haute cuisine and there are temples of hospitality. And Grenouille is a place like Cote Basque, like Le Pavillon, where gilded people go. They want to go. The difference, I would say, with Grenouille, which is the one of these restaurants that I knew well, is that you could go in and feel exalted, feel refreshed, feel you'd opened kind of the gates of paradise and been let in, even if you weren't important and rich. And I assure you, I was not. When I first entered East 52nd Street and went in and had my breath taken away by these gorgeous flower arrangements, part of the reason was the son of Charles Masson. So Charles Masson Sr. opens it with his wife. They live in Stuyvesant Town. Their entire life is dedicated to making this restaurant great. And Charles Masson, the cruise director, the hospitality king who trained under Henri Soule, is also an artist. He has an artist's eye. He does painting. He does watercolors. He transmit this, transmits this artist's eye to his son, Charles Masson Jr. Even in the 90s and the early 2000s, when I first got to go, as a nobody from the provinces who dreamed of entering this world, I was made to feel welcome. I could fly in Truman Capote and the swans and the people, as we've read in airmail, uh, the young journalist, he would stiff. He would just disappear, go get a drink down the street, leave them to pay the bill. But they were grand people. You were not looked at askance if you were not a grand person. You got to feast your eyes. You got to really enjoy the meal you were having. You had to splurge on it. It was never cheap. And yet you felt you were getting good value and that you were valued as a person, even if you didn't live on Park Avenue and you weren't Truman Capote and his swans. Everybody was made to feel welcome. That's what makes a place truly great. So what's happened there now? The building's for sale, but there's bigger problems than that, right? The biggest problem is that, as he explains it, and I have to say, I knew Charles Masson through friends. I came to know him. His younger brother, by seven years, took over the restaurant as Charles, whom I spoke to for this piece. I did not speak to Philip. He came in, and after two or three years from 2009 to about 2013, it was just impossible for the brothers to get along. The younger brother, Philippe, told Charles, you're an employee, stop spending so much money on preventive maintenance, which Charles says, having wanted to be an architect, he was very concerned about maintaining whatever the differences were. Charles did not want to be questioned. He says that his second wife, he was widowed, told him your health is deteriorating so badly that you leave or I'm a widow and I don't want to be a widow. So Charles left. He left the direction to Philippe, who, as I say in the article, sort of kitchified the place. He put in lots of uh, tchotchkes. The flowers are uh, kind of coarsened filler flowers as opposed to the beautiful, strictly seasonal flowers you would see before. It's easy to criticize the place. I do criticize the place in my article. But what's really sad is the tragedy of this uniquely elegant, beautifully tasteful place that made you feel part of another tranquil 
beautiful world as soon as you set foot in the door. Now it's just another restaurant in New York. I agree with everything you said. I got married there, and it was one of the reasons my wife, Brooke, and I got married there. We thought, it's, this place is going to be around forever. And it was also like the most perfect jewel box. It was like that room with the mirrors and the light and the little pink lights on the table and the flowers. It was like having your own private dinner in Versailles. It was beautiful. And now I think it's a little bit like a cruise ship, but not the cruise ship from the 50s. It's a little different. All that said, my question to you, Corby, is, is this the end of classic French dining in New York City? I mean, she really is the last grand dame standing. What are we looking at here? Classic French cuisine in the city has been declining for decades. If there was still an audience for it, there would be more restaurants that did classic French dining. It's not why you went, I would argue. You went for the beauty of the experience, for the kind of immaculate perfection, the quiet, immaculate, non-attention-grabbing aspect of the experience that had, as you said, this beautiful, your own private Versailles, and yet in a completely accessible, non-grand, non-intimidating, non-snobbish way. It was the intimacy of the room, but also what such care Charles took care of with his guests, not just someone getting married there. But I remember the night of our wedding, we'd been so busy, we hadn't eaten. And Charles came up to me afterward with his little business card on the back. He said to me, I noticed you guys didn't eat. You were so busy. And he said, here. And he gave me his card. I turned it over and he said, good for anniversary dinner every year. He said, you've always got a place to eat on your anniversary. And of course, it was just that gesture and that warmth, which there's the grandeur of the place, but also that just that personal warmth, which was so lovely. So I want to romanticize that a bit because that almost brings me to tears, that remembrance and what a beautiful wedding. I think it's kind of the kind of experience everybody hopes for in a restaurant. And as he would say, paying attention to every guest and noticing every single detail, that's what makes a restaurant great. And he noticed you didn't eat. And he made that beautiful gesture. And I would argue that he was doing that every night. So, Corby, the restaurant's temporarily closed, it seems. It hasn't reopened since the winter break. Billings for sale. What do you think is going to happen here between the two brothers? I don't think the brothers are going to get along. Their business differences are great. Charles has been suing Philippe for a share of the business and the sale of the building. What Charles said, which was very true, is if someone does buy it and wants to continue it as a restaurant, they'll probably rename it. They'll make it their own thing. I hope that it will be somebody who loves that building and loves the idea of a grand restaurant where you can have a private conversation and feel refreshed and away from the cares of the world. But it might be a very different vision. I'll honor and celebrate Regardless whether it stays with the family or someone new goes in there, Corby, I just hope that you and I can go there and the menu will always have the souffle at the end and we can share a little souffle and then walk into a cold winter night and feel we've had a perfect New York moment. So thank you for being here. I look forward to that moment and with you. <laughs> Great. Corby, the stories in this week's issue of Airmail, we thank you so much for bringing all your wonderful expertise and making us feel we've all been there for just a moment tonight. So thank you. And thank you. Okay, Michael, I think we should start a GoFundMe so that you and I can buy Lager and We. We can't let this thing go to pot. Yeah, it could be. We've got the Waverly in downtown as a canteen for Airmail. We should have a Midtown canteen as well. Honestly, we should have canteens all over the city. Maybe this is a project for us for 2024. Graydon? 
Are you ready? More on that to come. Well, Michael, look, we haven't had nearly enough scandal in the episode this week. I think it's time to move on to Gerard Depardieu. Absolutely. We've got the always wonderful Alexandra Marshall with a great report out of Paris, right? Yeah, it turns out that the Me Too-fueled cancellation of Gerard Depardieu has taken an exasperatingly long time, and Alex is here to tell us why. It turns out the truth is finally catching up to him as we head into 2024. Alex is a writer at large for Airmail, who is based in Le Perche, France, and we are thrilled to have her. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Alex, the allegations of sexual assault, harassment, bad behavior in general around Depardieu have been lingering for years, maybe even decades, but it seems like it's taken an awful long time to bring him to some form of justice. Take us to now. Take us to now. Well, the really bad behavior, he did a lot of risque films in the 70s, and there was certainly a kind of an atmosphere on set. Women like Anu Granberg, who wrote, who was interviewed in Elle, recently have said that for years this was going on, but the really bad behavior started to happen in the 90s. Nobody really knows why, but that's when he started to really act out in a much grosser way on set. He's been accused of rape by three different women. He's mostly been accused of sexual assault. So, and it was a lot of it was kind of grab-assing on sets and women with low on the totem pole extras young actresses, techs, makeup artists, wardrobe women, on-set techs, and stuff like that. And he was allowed to kind of do whatever he wanted. And the excuse was, c'est Gérard. Oh, you just, he's like that. The classic excuse before we started taking this kind of stuff seriously from the point of view of the women who suffer it. So this was all kind of murmurs until 2018 when a young actress called Charlotte Arnoux, who knew him, her family knew him, alleged that he raped her twice. And at first, the case was dropped for lack of evidence. She appealed. And now it's been picked up by what they call a juge d'instruction in French, which is kind of like a DA. It's a supervising judge who runs the investigation. And so he was indicted formally in 2020. He still hasn't been and gone in front of a judge for this, but that's where that case is at. And between 2018 and 2020, it was a little quieter. After the indictment happened, it, it, people started really coming out and talking. And then this year, it just continued to heat up and heat up. So this year was really the year that it that it broke, where the online investigative journal Mediapart gathered 13 different women who are alleged victims of his onset behavior, women who had all worked with him. And they presented this both on their online and they had a filmed roundtable so people could watch, which makes a difference. And then we had more and more people kind of speaking out after that, including this actress that I mentioned before, Anouk Granberg, who in October was interviewed in Elle magazine. And it's just an absolutely searing interview where she she knows Charlotte Arnoux and she felt that she needed support. So she's like, all right, I'm going to tell it all because she was on set with Depardieu since the very beginning. Her ex was the director of his film Les Valseuses, which was in 1974, which was kind of the thing that made him the biggest star going at the time. And her interview is just, she tells it all. She said the behavior on set, it's been going on since forever. I didn't say anything because I was low on the totem pole. People held their tongues because he was the star. As we all know, if you're a star, they let you do it, apparently. So bring us up to now. I guess that's where we are now. Alex, yeah, curiously, as you note in your report, reporting this week, there's more than a few people in the French culture and leadership who have said it's time to turn the page on this man. And yet you have Macron saying, quote, he makes France proud even right now. So can you just take us to where the split is in the culture and how he's being received right now? 
Okay, so as all of these allegations in this past year have come out in the beginning of December, a TV special came out on the 7th of December by an investigative show called Complément d'Enquête. And it was a special on Depardieu, which had, among other things, never before seen footage of Depardieu in North Korea on a documentary with the writer Jan Moix. His behavior is absolutely out of control. He's grabbing women. He's sexually harassing every woman in his presence. It's insane. So when this show aired on the 7th of December, then people finally realized just how bad it was. Because before you had women whose testimony you would hear it was moving. But once they saw him behaving in this way, it was just like, whoa. So more buzz mounts. The Minister of Culture says, oh, we're going to have to look at his Legion of Honor medal. This does not bring honor to France. And so just to that was the context in which Macron gave an interview on the 20th of December about just about everything under the sun and including Depardieu, where he was extremely emphatic and almost weirdly so. Say, I don't believe in man hunts and Depardieu brings honor to France. And of course, Everybody who had just a few weeks ago seen this show was like, there's absolutely nothing honorable for France. So controversy continues to mount. And then on December 25th comes the grand reaction from the kind of cultural old guard in France who came into power in the 60s, 70s and 80s at a time when French cinema was incredibly powerful. And also, politically speaking, if America and France's destinies kind of diverged in the 80s where we went, Reagan, Neo-Puritan, and they went, the powerful people were all May 68 people. So they sort of enshrined this kind of approach to libertinism and, and sexual freedom that was actually the context for a lot of abuse. An open letter ran in Le Figaro on December 25th, signed by a lot of these powerful, older French stars. They signed in favor. This open letter talks about, let's not erase Gérard Depardieu in the face of all these accusations. Let's, if we erase Depardieu, we're erasing art not a mention at all for the women accusing him. So these people signed this petition. And then, of course, again, everybody went, what are you doing? What are you doing? How can you possibly defend this man without a word for the victims? The counter reaction has been really strong with younger film workers and women. So after the December 25th petition, immediately a counter petition was launched on Mediapower that was signed by 8,000 artists, mostly younger, in two days. After that, Another counter petition came out in Mediapar, which was signed by 150 oh, slightly more famous people. So you have this climate of kind of the pro Depardieu camp or seen by most everyone else in France as these kind of old past it boomers who love their sexual prerogative to kind of run around abusing anybody they want versus the kind of younger, more responsible people of today who are greatly affected by Me Too and who want people to remember that art is not an excuse to abuse women. So you have the French film industry kind of in two camps and it's getting a little tense. How do you think this is going to play out for Macron as well as Depardieu and... Depardieu is no longer involved in any film production. He's... So he's done. He's done. Will he be convicted of anything? I don't know. I mean, the justice system for prosecuting rape is as terrible in France as it is in America. It's really, really hard to bring people to justice. Is Macron going to suffer any for this? So he doesn't stand for election anymore. He can kind of do what he wants. I mean, he has the future of his party and the kind of French center right to try to think about. There's no consequences for Macron other than 3000 headlines and feminist politicians all making a lot of really justified noise about what a stupid thing he said and how, in fact, the France that people are proud of is the France that protects the powerless 
and doesn't give impunity to the powerful. And are we still able to watch Depardieu's movies on TV? Is this kind of a Woody Allen situation where they exist, but we're supposed to feel guilty about enjoying them? No, they're still on TV in France. They've sort of took a pause and thought, mm, do we want to celebrate this artist right now? And then, no. I mean, the thing with Depardieu is imagine Marlon Brando, the greatness of Marlon Brando, but also acting in an enormous string of movies about based on classics of French literature and really important French historical figures. So he represents France in a way that really few other actors ever have. So it's you'll never not see his movies. I mean, his adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac is required viewing for high school students in France. They show it in school. I mean, he's really a part of the French cultural institution. People are reckoning now with his legacy. They definitely don't want him around at present. But nobody is saying we shouldn't, except for Swiss TV. <laughs> nobody in France is saying we should absolutely erase him entirely. Well, Alex, thanks for this great story. Bye. Nice to see you guys. Thank you, Alex. Take care. Well, okay, if you think being a woman on a Gerard Depardieu film set is bad, just imagine what it's like to be a woman living in Russia right now. And Alessandra Stanley, the co-editor of Airmail, who was formerly the Moscow bureau chief of the New York Times, is here to explain how Putin is punishing women. Welcome, Alessandra. Good morning, Alessandra. Hi there. So in all of the conversation about Putin being an evil warmonger, we've neglected to discuss one important element of his personality, which is he's a good old fashioned misogynist. Yes. And that's what stupidly I thought might be the one advantage women face in Russia, which is, as you know, they are still very much second class citizens. I thought that Putin, judges, I thought they would be reluctant at first to hand out these long sentences to women that mothers, daughters, wives, they would just be sort of magnanimous in their sexism. But I was wrong. Yeah, this is no Elizabeth Holmes in like a fairly friendly women's only prison. He's sending them straight out to the gulag. So tell us about this latest court case in Putin's revenge on one of his enemies. This is one that, again, shocked me, even though I should be well past it. This is a woman called Zinya Fadeva, and she's 31, and she won a seat on the Tomsk City Council, which is kind of a dog catcher role. But because she was a supporter of Navalny's, they trumped up some charges against her, and she's going to prison for seven to nine years, somewhere horrible in Siberia. And and it's just a reminder that there is no recourse for women. I mean, we, if you think about it, human rights organizations are much too fair-minded and principled to say, oh, release her because she's a woman. But that's how I'm feeling. This is ridiculous. You can't keep people as second-class citizens and then treat them as first-class citizens in a completely trumped-up judicial system. This doesn't naturally have any sway with Putin, but it is kind of shocking how many women he's sending away, of all ages, old, young. And there are very few women in circles of power in Russia, as well as you mentioned in your column. What is the situation like around him in his cabinet and throughout the government? Does he have any women anywhere in prominent roles? I mentioned one, Margarita Simonyan, who is the head of the state TV. She's very smart, very hawkish. He doesn't consider her a friend or crony. She's not at the dacha at the Black Sea. She's an employee who does his bidding like everybody else does. And other than her, I mean, they're very so, so very few. There's spokeswomen and stuff, but they're all lapdogs and they're not, none of them are ever described as a Putin crony, right? They're a Putin spokesperson. I, you mentioned a detail I love, which is that he gave a speech on International Women's Day, which is hilarious for a lot of reasons. But according to Putin, what is the highest measure of a woman's contribution to society? Well, not surprisingly, it is motherhood and wifelyhood. But he was saying this not just to mothers and daughters at home, but to service women and medics and nurses at the so-called front. So it had a special resonance because he's such a jerk. But the irony is that 
women do all the work, but they have this annual pretense of women are the fairer sex who deserve flowers and recognition once a year. Were things better for women in Russia in the 90s when you were there as a bureau chief for the New York Times and Gorbachev was in power? Kind of, up to a point. I think young single women, and my friends were all young single women, had the time of their lives because they were suddenly allowed to do what they wanted, they be in advertising. But what I realized was that society was still very sexist. And for example, young, successful, entrepreneurial men would come to a dinner and they would not bring their wives because in the sort of Asiatic notion of women stay at home. And that was, to me, a bit shocking, but it was also great because you never had to worry about an extra man problem. You just, there was always an extra man. There could be five. And what do they think of you? How are you treated by men in positions of power in Russia? Well, because you're foreign, you're American, you're in the New York Times, you're sexless in a way. I mean, there's condescension and patronizing stuff, but it was not. I was treated much better than Russian women would have been. I mean, there were some very interesting, powerful wonderful women in Russia then and now. It's just that now they are pariahs because, of course, being intelligent and wonderful, they're against Putin and they really have no place to go. A lot of them have left. And the women who aren't in prison that I know have left. It seems like the only women in prominent roles in Russian society these days, as you mentioned, are like gymnasts, ballerinas. That's who we think Putin's great love of his life is this famous Russian gymnast who's known as the most flexible woman in Russia. And she apparently is stashed away in Switzerland somewhere with six kids, but he has never acknowledged her and gets offended if you ever ask him about his personal life. I actually think he's just paranoid about security, but he professes to be above that kind of thing. I was amazed to learn, I mean, sort of an eye opener when you pointed out in your column that Putin's been in power 25 years now. Everything goes so fast when you're having fun. <laughs> and you have your long perspective of running the bureau there. But is Putin an outlier or is this deep ingrained misogyny in the culture? It's a deeply ingrained misogyny that existed in communist times in sort of fledgling democracy times. And it really exists under Putin because he doesn't fight it at all. He encourages it. He is marching the country backwards every year. So for every 25 years he's in power, the country goes backwards at 25 decades, practically. So yeah, nothing's been done to advance women, but lots been done to advance Putin. I think the pettiness of the crimes that people are being sent away for are just astounding. There have been women who have been sent to prison for wearing blue and yellow nail polish in public because blue and yellow are the colors of Ukraine. We're just standing in a crowd and holding up a white piece of paper because that since you're not allowed to speak out, it's just a, people understand white blank paper is an expression of something on opposition. And those people get rounded up and taken away, too. I mean, it's just astounding how little it takes to get into prison these days in Russia. At the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, we were talking a lot about young people, especially young women, leaving Russia. Are we still seeing a lot of that happening? Yes. I mean, it's getting harder and harder, but there really isn't much choice. If you're not held down by small children or your mother or whatever, go to Latvia. A lot of women are. I mean, it sounds sexist to say that the suffering of women is somehow worse than men, but the condition of women is so much worse than men in Russia that I did hope that this would be the one exception, that there would be one advantage of sexism in Russia would be that you would be treated differently from men. But I was wrong. All right, Alessandra, thank you so much. Love talking to you and love this story. See you soon. Once again, Michael, I feel like I really missed out on life because I haven't lived in Moscow in the 90s, specifically with Alessandra. I mean, what a time it must have been. Well, you are living in London present day where Patrick Kidd has a crazy story. Speaking of women and I don't know, other strange behavior, right? Yeah, I don't know if you can compare Gorbachev to Michelle Moan, but who knows? Patrick was the Westminster correspondent for the Times of London for many years. Now he writes the diary column in the Times of London, and he's a contributor to Airmail. We're thrilled to have him explain all about Baroness Bra, who she is, what she means, and why we just can't get rid of her, at least not yet. Welcome, Patrick. 
Okay, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to be with you, Ashley. So, Patrick, those of us in the UK have been reading about Michelle Moan and her various scandals for years now, but she's not especially well known in the US. So, take us back to the broad days. Who is she? <laughs> Well, she's possibly best known from a stir she created in America around Erin Brockovich. You remember the Oscar-winning film that Julia Roberts was in, where she had a distinctive chest, let us say. And when Michelle Moon, who is a lingerie designer, launched this bra that she had created in America at Saks Fifth and Fifth Avenue, a story appeared in the New York Post saying that if you bought this bra, the Ultimo bra, you could look like Julia Roberts. And that got a lot of publicity. And from that sort of her name was made. But her story actually begins in Britain in absolute poverty, almost Dickensian poverty. She had a father who was in a wheelchair. She had a brother who had a spina bifida disability. She grew up in a tenement flat in Glasgow in Scotland, where they were so poor, they didn't have a bath or a shower. They had to go to the swimming baths to wash. And from this, she became one of sort of the leading entrepreneurs, as I said, making her money through designing these push-up bras with a silicone implant that gave people a distinctive cleavage. And through this, she became very successful. She made a lot of money. And then suddenly she ended up in the House of Lords when uh, David Cameron, who was the prime minister at the time, decided she was the person he needed in his legislature. And so that's perhaps where she came to a sort of a wider audience because she became known as Baroness Bra over here. And there was a certain amount of mockery. She's had a fairly colorful love life too, Patrick. Tell us about the end of Michelle Moon and the beginning of her next act. Well, indeed. So she left home at 15. She was already showing traces of being an entrepreneur then. At the age of 10, she had taken up a newspaper delivery route and she got all the local kids to work for her. And then she left home at 15 and was suddenly married three years later while still a teenager. She had a baby. And all through building her business, her brand, she she was married for 20 years and then suddenly she got divorced from Mr. Moon. She was born Michelle Allen. She married that Mr. Moon and she took her revenge on him. In distinctive style, she poured laxative into his coffee and she trashed his Porsche. And then after that, she went through a series of, she was linked to various celebrities, people with names over here, but it's not in America, an actor called Shane Ritchie, a cricketer. Shane Warne, who dated Elizabeth Hurley for a while, various other people. She dated a golfer in the Caribbean. And then suddenly she met this man, Barrowman, Doug Barrowman, who actually grew up very close to her in Glasgow. And she met him in 2016. They married in 2020. And he is the one that she is now embroiled with in this scandal that could bring her down. Because together they had a couple of difficult business decisions with cryptocurrency and stuff like that. And then during COVID, they decided they were going to go all in and bid for a £200 million contract to make protective equipment. And that's where the scandal has now come to light, because she had used her contacts within the government through being a member of the House of Lords to lobby to get this contract. And it turned out that some of the equipment they provided, these gowns and masks, were not fit for purpose. And they are now being sued by the government for $120 million. And also there is a, an investigation by the National Crime Agency into fraud and, and, and deception, all of which, I hasten to add, they deny the allegations. But this is now a serious a storm around them, if you like, that she has gone from being the woman who had it all to potentially being the woman who might lose it all. And Patrick, meanwhile, I mean, she's sitting in the House of Lords, yet another person with somewhat of a checkered history there. There's been a conversation in the UK about the necessity of the House of Lords. Do you think that this is adding to the conversation in any way? I'm sure it does. Yeah, I mean, let me just say, as someone who's covered Parliament for, for years, there are many excellent members of the House of Lords who do a really useful job. They bring expertise, they refine legislation. But then there's also been, and this has been for many years, a tendency of prime ministers to put their cronies, their, their donors, their friends, people who have perhaps no qualification for being politicians, into a job for life. She has the title Baroness Moan of Mayfair, which is an exclusive area in London. And she has barely shown up. She was given this peerage in 2015. She made 
her maiden speech, her first speech in 2016. It was a very good, powerful speech about her, her upbringing. And she quoted from Whitney Houston even and said how she was guided by sort of the Houston motif to always be striving for better. And then we've barely seen her. She has to be praised for her enterprising spirit. I mean, she saw a gap in the market. She was unemployed. So she, she'd worked for Labatt's, the brewing company, after leaving home at 15. And she'd become their head of marketing in her early 20s. And then suddenly she was unemployed and she wanted to find some way to make it. So, I mean, it's amazing that she became a multi-million pound entrepreneur by her own hard work. There's a story about her going into labour with her third child during a business meeting and then being back at work sort of two days later. So she deserves praise for that. Her second husband, this Mr. Paraman, who is very wealthy, more wealthy than her. He owns a couple of yachts, yes, many houses, many cars. It seems like together perhaps that they overreached and they saw that the government was offering these lucrative contracts in, in the, the fog of COVID when there was suddenly an emergency we needed this. And they perhaps saw this would be easy money and this is now coming back to buy them. But they are resisting this. They put out a big statement, 9am on New Year's Day, denying it all and saying that the government is trying to go after them because they're famous when they could be going after other providers who also didn't fill their contracts. And it's all trying to detract attention from the fact the government handled COVID badly. So they're trying to spin it around. I'm not sure they're winning much sympathy, though. What's at stake for Michelle Moon and Barrowman now? Well, there's three things. There's this lawsuit for $120 million for the defective equipment. So there's a financial risk, perhaps, that they would have to to pay up. And there's been a story in the papers in Britain today that they are apparently selling off some of their assets, getting rid of a a yacht here, a couple of cars there, a house there. And they're saying this is just normal. This is what rich people do. We get rid of things all the time, but perhaps they need quick money. The other thing, which is impossible to predict, but this this criminal investigation is if that does find evidence of, of criminal activity, and there's talk of bribery and fraud, as I say, they deny these allegations. If that comes to something, then that's quite serious. The other thing is her title. I'm not sure she will ever sit in the House of Lords again. Well, it's a great story, Patrick. And something tells me we're not going to be hearing the last of it anytime soon. So we hope to speak to you again about Baroness Bra or perhaps other matters too. Take care. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much. Well, that is the finishing touch on a great episode. I'm not going to recommend Michelle Moon's bras, but Michael, I know you've got something else you can recommend to us. I do. And I thought, should I recommend this or not? But I thought, like, you know what? I think most people's holiday traveling is over and it's not going to be too in your head. Have you seen Society of the Snow? Definitely not. This is a harrowing I think, adrenaline-heavy survival movie. That's the latest attempt to tell the true story of what happened in the fall of 1972 with the Uruguayan plane that was carrying 45 people, mostly members of a rugby team known as the Old Christians, crashed in the Andes and were stranded for more than two months now. Some of you may remember the book, Alive, which told the story and then became a movie, I think with Ethan Hawke back in the day. But by the time they were rescued, only 16 people were surviving. And as it was revealed later, they resorted to a number of ways to survive, including eating the dead. That said, this is an amazing movie. I think it's beautiful, in fact. It's so beautiful that it's Spain's entry in the Oscars this year for Best Foreign Language Film. Like I say, it's a story of survival. It's filled with adrenaline and a lot of suspense. It's called Society of the Snow, and it is on Netflix now. And you, my dear? Okay, Michael, I'm embarrassed to say I spent most of the week between Christmas and New Year watching television and going to the movies. That's what it's for. I know, I know, I know. That's what it's for. It's the only week of the year where that behavior is really sanctioned. But did you see anyone but you? No, did not see anyone but you. Oh my God. It's a rom-com. You know, I love a rom-com and it stars Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell, who are fantastic. I loved this so much. I went with two of my friends and we all thought it was fantastic. It's sort of based on Much Do About Nothing. And in addition to the sort of cheesy plot line. Wait, and wait. 
wait, wait. An important question. Yeah. An important question. Did you go to this movie with a couple glasses of wine in you? No, I was still okay. cold sober. Continue. I did, have, I did have like 84 gallon tub of popcorn, but that's a topic we'll discuss on another day. I thought this was the funniest, most hilarious movie. And it's basically all about, it's kind of about like a couple that meets cute and then they have a falling out and then they try to get back together over the course of a long weekend in Australia. That's the wedding of some friends of theirs. But anyway, I thought it was really funny. I love Sydney Sweeney. Everyone in it had this like amazing body. It was like ridiculous. Like all the men, all the women, like everyone looked like they had just been doing Pilates nonstop for the last five years. And it was a good motivator for me to get out of my movie seat and like ditch the popcorn and hit the gym. But I loved the movie. I thought it was really fun. And then I also saw Napoleon, which I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't seen. Have you seen Napoleon? That's one I'm still getting to in the theater. So tell me, tell me, tell me. It was so great. I loved it. As dramatic and visceral as you would expect from a Ridley Scott movie, Vanessa Kirby's Extraordinary as Josephine, Empress Josephine. Joaquin Phoenix is just so straight up unabashedly strange that he really worked in this role. It's great. And then after you see the movie, go back and listen to the rest. It's history podcast because they have three or four great episodes about the reign of Napoleon. All very interesting stuff. Anyway, I loved it. I thought it gave me really some new insight into this Corsican mastermind of French politics. Terrific. Okay. Thank you all so much for joining us. Happy New Year. Go watch loads of garbage on television or quality things, either or, maybe both. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputies are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Drew Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting, but in the meantime, be sure to subscribe and Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.